Hello, and welcome to the Culture Force podcast. We're excited you're here. Now, we know that you're probably listening to this as you drive or work out or whatever you're doing or wherever you are, and you don't have the ability right now to write down every single thing you hear that our guests share, and some of it is world-changing. It's incredible. So we got your back. Kyle and I have created a free ebook that contains every single interview we've done, the highlights of those interviews. And so it's about 20 pages long. If you head over to cultureforce.team, T-E-A-M, and just put in your email address, we'll send you this ebook that has all the best bits of the podcast we've conducted this season. So head over there. Make sure you head over to iTunes and give us a like as well. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us whether you think Kyle did a better job or whether Chris did a better job. Uh, or if you think we just both did a good job, or maybe we both need work. But anyways, we love hearing from you. Head over there for that free ebook. It's a, a treasure trove of some of the best information that I've ever heard from some of these incredible people we've interviewed this season. So thanks for your time, and let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? It's the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Culture Force podcast. Today we have a dear friend of mine, Mark Brown, a chief people officer of Zovio. And in the famous words of Jack Welsh, HR is the driving force behind what makes a winning team. We make the argument that the team that feels the best players wins. HR is involved in making sure we feel the best players. That's their job. And their job is to sit in every meeting, be involved in every part of the business equation. They're not the health and happiness, picnics, benefits team. They're the development team, developing today's and tomorrow's leaders. And if you have an organization where HR is relegated to forms and benefits, you got the wrong game going. This is why we thought it'd be really cool to have someone like Mark on the show. Mark has some tremendous experience. He started out back in the 90s uh, with Bell Atlantic, now Verizon. Then he was a manager at Williams, then at Honeywell as an HR generalist. Then he went on to be a director at Best Buy for HR strategic capabilities, then United Healthcare, then Encore Capital Group. Eventually, he was at Petco as their VP of HR of stores and logistics. He was also at ProFlowers, and now he's at Zovio as the chief people officer. It is my privilege to welcome Mark to the show. So check it out. Hope you learned something. Hey, Mark. So welcome. We're so great to have you here. Let's get right into it. Uh, please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself from your mouth. I'd love to hear it. And uh, how you kind of got to this path of where you are in at uh, Zavios and, uh, and what kind of drew you into, you know, the CHRO world, if you will. Yeah, sure. Thanks, guys, for having me. <clears throat> You know, if you ask anyone on my team, they'll tell you that my passion is really developing others. And for the last couple of years, I've really focused on developing heads of HR. Folks come work for me for a few years, and then they head out to lead HR at other companies. You know, actually, uh, I started way back when in IT, and then I went into training and organization development. 
And I did that for about 10 years. And I loved TNOD and doing executive coaching. It was really rewarding. But at some point, I looked around and realized that human resources seemed to have much more potential to impact the overall organization than training did. And I interviewed with this amazing leader at Honeywell Space and Aviation Products who made me an offer. And she's like, come lead our org development um, team for the business, and I'll teach you HR by making you the HR generalist supporting our 100-person IT group. Um, it was a brilliant move, right? On her part, she leveraged my strengths in culture and OD, my undergrad in IT, I could speak their talk, and my desire to learn HR. Uh, and so as a result of her, literally, I've spent the last 20 years in HR helping companies grow and improve by focusing on culture and putting employees first. You are uh, a rarity, it would seem. The IT people I meet often are happy to be in their dark offices and only come out when they absolutely have to um, because they're absolutely frustrated. You don't understand how binary code works <laughs> from top to bottom. How in the world did you make the connection between IT and HR? Um, and what makes you different that you sort of connect in, in, in a different way to people? Um, because that seems pretty rare. Yeah, I definitely am an odd duck in, in the HR space. Um, when I was in IT way back when, Verizon used to be called Bell Atlantic, and they were going through a massive culture change in the entire uh, company. And so they were looking for internal facilitators to teach these two and three day culture sessions that paired a person from corporate and a person from the union together to do these sessions. And a friend of mine had said, hey, you ought to come try out. And the tryouts, there was multiple uh, multiple tryouts you had to go through, multiple tests. And, and one of them was being in a giant audience, and you had to go to the front of the room and start telling a story. And then the facilitators in the back would hold up a card. It might say purple. It might say giraffe. It might say water bottle. And you had to weave that word into your story. And after three or four minutes, then they would ask the audience, okay, what were the words that were woven in? And if nobody could guess, then you did a nice seamless approach at telling a story. Mm -hmm. And I found an untapped passion of being a ham in front of an audience. I'm like, <laughs> where else can you get, you know, paid to tell stories, make stuff up, um, make people laugh? And so I went from an incredible introvert my whole life to kind of interested in this idea of, you know, helping others through storytelling or influencing. And ultimately, that's what got me into training and get my master's in organization development. So to this day, I am still introverted. I surround myself with extroverted HR leaders who ask all the right people questions. Uh, I still like holding up sometimes and just cranking away on Excel or PowerPoint in the middle of the night. Um, so the IT guy is still in me. But uh, my passion is really influencing and developing. All right, that's great. I have a story I got to share with you guys. Oh, my gosh. So I went through this deal, Carnegie Training, back about 10 years ago. They were sending all our leadership through it. And so we had to show up and we had to tell this a difficult story that happened to you before the age of 14. And so my parents were divorced when I was five. Then my mom was remarried. We got divorced again at 13. I think it was not an amazing childhood that I remember. And so I wasn't feeling tremendously vulnerable or transparent. <laughs> so I was like, what am I going to say and share? Because that just, I kind of have moved on, you know, I'm much more happy and joyful. You know, I don't like to look back and dwell on that. I want to look at the future and see all the great things ahead. And um, 
So I said, what am I going to do when I'm going to do? And so you had to stand up in class and tell the story. So I stood up and I said, hey, when I was 14 years old, my mom moved us across the country. And um, it was her and I, and we were living in this apartment complex. And I remember it was Halloween, and I had gone off to the arcade. And on the way back, these boys chased me. They were dressed up in skeleton costumes, and they were on their bicycles, and they chased me, and they beat me up. And it was great because the, the caretaker at the apartment complex found me, and he told me he could teach me some skills that would prevent that from happening again. And he taught a, a really unorthodox way of karate. And so... <laughs> At this point, the class is like, wait, I think that's the Karate Kid. Like, that sounds an awful like, does that, did that happen to you too? Or I'm like, so, yeah. so then I, I couldn't do it. So then I started laughing because it was, exa- I was just retelling the Karate Kid story. <laughs> and then I started telling the other story about when I was, you know, we were in a terrible car crash, but I could see dead people. And it went from there. And then one time my mom and family, we were taking this trip and they left me home alone. And I was just, you, were, yeah. you weren't in your teens when those movies came out. You were like in your 30s. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. So I did Home Alone. I did The Sixth Sense. And then finally, the, the person that was teaching a class said, if you're not going to take this serious, just sit down. And so the class enjoyed it, which was great. I guess that was a win. So, But uh, I can tell a story, too, I think. I like that. That's fun. That would be a fun challenge to hold up a different card. We should do that during the podcast we today. We're just going to hold up different things and see if you can weave them in yeah. seamlessly. <laughs> Picture, the picture test or the picture fun test or whatever you want. All right, all right. Back to why you're here, Mark. Back to why you're here. So uh, we, before you came in, we just briefly uh, chatted. Um, we asked this really at the start of most of our podcasts. Honestly, uh, we say our premise is that we believe leadership is overrated, that uh, we have been through leadership training. We have done personality tests. We have done Myers-Briggs. We have HR has put us through training. Leadership has gone to executive camps. Whatever you have, but 79% of people in an organization to this day still are not very satisfied with their jobs. If we have put that much effort into leadership and leaders still can't find a way to motivate or get people excited or feel people, uh, empower people or help people feel appreciated, we have failed. Why is it that leadership continues to fail those that need the help the most? It's supposed to help the most. As an HR guy, you probably have seen this time and time again. What advice, what uh, explanation do you have for that? would love to hear just your entire take on that. So uh, you're absolutely right in that the surveys get worse and worse every year in terms of the number of people that are disengaged in companies. Uh, and having spent a, a third of my career doing training and leadership development, what I'm seeing today is People are trying to soften the language and no longer say that leaders are just managers or executives, but that everyone can be a leader. A frontline person can influence others. And I think that's totally true in every profession. But I also think that, um, you know, we invest in, in employees and we tell them these are the responsibilities as leaders, but then we absolutely drop the ball in terms of holding them accountable for what we proclaim to be or to say or to expect from them. I gave you an interesting example. I was at an online retailer years ago and I I was very new in the role. And I sat with the CEO as he met with each of his executives and that each executive went through their entire list of employees on their team and and shared what the rating was for that employee and how much of a, a comp increase, an annual increase that person was going to get. And so I sat through about 13 of these meetings with the CEO. 
And afterwards, I'm like, um, you know, I noticed a couple of trends here. We keep giving the highest ratings to the folks that bring either the most revenue or the biggest impact on the business. And therefore, we're also giving them the biggest increases. And the CEO's like, yeah, so that's how you run a business. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, the other thing I'm seeing from at least my time here is that a lot of these folks that got the biggest increases and highest ratings are also the biggest jerks in the company. They're the ones that nobody really wants to work for. They have high turnover on their team. So, you know, I'm the new guy here, but it seems to me like we're rewarding the what, not the what and the how. And he said, well, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, you know, look at this person and this person. Yeah, they they hit their numbers, but that's not where people want to go work. They don't transfer to those teams. People don't look up at them and say, this is what I want to be like in the future. But in effect, that's the message we're sending because these are the people that get promoted and paid more and held up. And I said, if we really want to win, I think we're going to have to start to focus on the what and the how. And so to your point, you know, we can talk and until we're blue in the face around what leaders should do, but how we choose to reward or disincentivize um, uh, I think is is much bigger. And we'll talk more about how culture is just pervasive across the business. You, you know, in my, in my mind, culture is really just a, a sum of everything that happens. It's what's allowed to happen. It's what we want to happen and don't want to happen, but allow it to happen. And, uh, you know, in that particular instance, um, what the the executives and the CEO didn't realize was that that entire company would was looking up at the decisions they were making, who got rewarded and who didn't, who got developed, who got um, who retained, and so forth. Chris and I talk about this quite a lot in terms of uh, perks aren't necessarily the best way to reward an employee or to build culture. And so, you know, when you sit down with you know a new a new founder, or if you were to ever sit down with a, you know, a new CEO, someone that's a little junior, a new department head, whoever it might be, uh, and they don't truly understand the role of, of HR, what do you tell them? What do you tell them when they go, well, you know, aren't you guys going to be, you know, aren't you guys in charge of payroll? What, what's a good, a good thing to really, really drive into a, a junior leader of a, you know, a startup? We have a lot of startups that listen to this pod, uh, a lot of uh, small business owners that want to impact their culture. So, and sometimes maybe they don't have the revenue to uh, be able to afford someone like you. But, you know, what, are, what, are you, what would you tell them, Mark? What would you say? Well, I'm probably uh, not the best... Um, person to answer that question in the sense that I've been really fortunate the last seven or eight companies I've worked in, uh, I think do do great HR. And, and so my role typically is not to create, but to take a business from where it is and make it even better. You know, when you think about like the Great Place to Work Institute, um, I've come into three companies and said, okay, not necessarily how can we win, but how can we go from a score of 30 or 40 or 50 and get us up into the 70s and 80s? Um, and so what I've encountered over the years is uh, is a number of executives that have come up to me, usually peers or clients if I'm a business partner and I'm supporting them. <clears throat> and they say, you know, you're not like normal HR. Uh, and my teams aren't like the type of HR teams they're used to. 
And uh, they say, you know, you understand our business, you understand what we do, our function. Um, and we focus ultimately on helping, you know, them get the right people and keep those people and, and hit their organizational goals. Uh, and they're like, you listen to us and you collaborate and, and you solve our operational problems. And so that's probably the greatest compliment, you know, I've ever gotten is you're not like normal HR. And I think, unfortunately, that's just a, a mindset that's pervaded for, for years is that HR just does payroll or employee relations or investigations were rules, were policy police, were those things. Um, back in the 90s, Dave Ulrich out of Michigan wrote a book about HR um, partners and, and HR champions. And I, I thought... Um, I wasn't great at the fundamentals of HR, the recruiting and employee relations and stuff like that, but I really liked understanding how business worked and supporting and serving clients. So um, I moved into the role of a HR business partner, and I see that role as the tip of the spear. They learn their clients' business, they partner to solve problems, and then they deliver on promises. Ultimately, they become the face of HR. And my goal is that everyone on my teams, from payroll to employee relations to training, adopt that same mindset around service. So HR, at the end of the day, we're a service provider. We bring in talent, we grow it, develop it, retain it, we exit it if it's if it's you know hurting the business. Ultimately, if we don't serve and help make things better, then I think we should be replaced or outsourced. That's interesting, you know. I think that uh, I have felt the same way many times, and I heard someone describe it. Well, first off, it feels like sometimes a lot of HR teams are just focused on administrative uh, compliance type matters. And, and essentially, the HR team is focused on protecting the business, um, and they're not really interested in protecting me as an individual. They're not my sort of advocate within the company, within leadership. Hey, this is how you treat people. This is how you create a culture with people. This is how you protect people. This is how you motivate or appreciate people. Um, it's more of we just are compliant. You'll see us when there's an issue or a problem or there's uh, we have to do sort of a new enrollment for uh, healthcare services. And I always felt like it was such a waste. Like here's a group, uh, an organization within the company who could really make a difference in impacting a culture, who could change things dramatically, um, you know, from making people feel valued um, to, on the day they arrive uh, and making people feel valued the day they, they're asked to leave even. Um, but why do you think there's, like, is that just a, a default? It's easy just to kind of fall into the compliance administrative side, working with, I mean, you're a chief people officer uh, is your title. Um, how do you get from being compliant-based to people-based? Well, I, you know, I don't think it's an either-or question. I think it's a both-and. And if we don't do, you know, if we're not compliant, we put the company at risk financially, legally, and so forth. So there are things, parts of our job that we just have to do. You know, when you take your car in to get service, there's just some fundamentals that have to get done with an oil change and checks or it's not going to run correctly. But, uh, and that's an important role and there's people that do that really, really well. But to your point, I think there's this missed opportunity uh, or potential to bring so much more to the table, but we have to get the nuts and bolts right. Uh, I often tell, um, over the years, I've had folks either intern for me or come out of school or it's their first or second HR job, and they're like, I want to be a business partner. And I'm like, that's great. So I would love for it to have you work in employee relations and then rotate into recruiting. I'd like you to understand how we submit 
benchmarking surveys and data. And I go through this litany of things like, I don't want to do all those things. I want to be a business partner. I said, a great business partner has an understanding of all elements of HR so that they can ultimately bring the right people and resources to the table to help their clients. There is no shortcut to being a business partner. So, you know, I think we have to get the basics done right. And then on top of that, we start to add the really higher value um, uh, components around leadership development, culture, having really tough conversations with CEOs and execs and forcing them to to think about their own behaviors and the impact on the business. Mm-hmm. I love it. I worked at a great, an organization once. We had a great guy. His name was Rick. Um, and I he felt like a partner. If I needed to add someone, I knew Rick would have a conversation with me. And he'd say, hey, you hire differently, so you can do it that way. Some people like us to manage the whole process. So we're happy to do that. But So I've told my team just to kind of cut you a little bit more slack on how they bring the candidates to you. And that you'll vet the candidate first and then bring it to us versus vice versa. I, I remember he would come along if I had issues and he'd sit down and he'd just walk you through how to do it. He just made you feel warm and welcome. He knew everything that you talked about. He knew all the administrative and compliance stuff, but he did it in a way that culture came first. Like, it was more important that you understood. It was more important we took the time. It was more important that everyone around you um, understood the process and was valued. Um, I mean, we won Best Place to Work for eight straight years, and it had almost everything to do with Rick uh, on that team. And as a matter of fact, we even split, created a new role called VP of culture within the organization. And as we started to grow and needed someone to do recruiting, needed someone more on, in tune with all of the new laws, our registration on administrative side, we made sure that we let Rick sort of shine where he was and create, continue to create that culture. Yeah, great example. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear your perspective on, so a lot of times we hear organizations that are really looking for an individual to, to easily flow in to their culture in, in an individual that will match the vibe, the environment that will easily kind of fit the narrative. Um, I'm assuming that you guys either do or do not, or it's, it doesn't matter. Uh, I'm curious to hear kind of your perspective on, on how you guys view that, that perspective, you know, does that make sense? Like when people are going, Hey, we really look for someone that really fits our, our environment. What do you guys look for? When you're looking for, is it is it's not black and white, right? No, it's certainly not black and white. Uh, it, it's a, you know, it's another one of those million dollar questions where if you could figure this out, you would you would solve many many hiring problems across the country. Um, interestingly, you know, we do do some of the fundamentals. So we use uh, a predictive index test. Uh, or assessment that lets us know how folks are wired and we have a a certain threshold. I think it's a six. So depending on the role, Mm -hmm. you have to have some degree of match for the role that you're going into or otherwise you're in essence probably not going to leverage your strength. You're going to burn all your energy just trying to fit in uh, and do what's expected of you and you're not going to most likely be happy and find your passion. But um, that that's sort of just the ticket to admission. That's that's an early screening tool. What we implemented last year, two years ago, was uh, and a requirement that every person, no matter what position they were applying for, a frontline call center, administrative assistant, and a, an executive role, a marketing manager, any person that was applying to the company had to write a statement on why they felt some connection to our mission 
and the purpose and what we do and serve. And we found that those statements were often, were often really indicative of why that person was coming to us. Did they just copy some stuff off the website? Did they tell a story about, you know, how education impacted their life or somebody in their family or friend? Uh, did they have clarity or was this just a job hop, the next step for them? And so we start with that statement, but then we carry that, that uh, sort of probing that all the way through the interview process, we're really looking to see, is this a move where somebody might want to stay with us for a number of years and grow? And, you know, I think every single person in the company ultimately has the chance to, to be the face of the company because everyone's either serving external customers or internal customers. And so um, every person that participates in the interview, they always have competencies or questions or technical things that they're assessing, but they always are looking for fit. Have you guys ever, we've heard of uh, stories of different companies. Um, for example, for me, I know on one of my companies uh, for an associate, one thing that I really, really look for, it's a high value for me is honesty and responsiveness. You do those two things and you're responsive and fast, even if it's, you know, late on a, on a Sunday night and you just give me an answer like, hey, Kyle, I'm sorry, I'm really busy right now. Cool. I'm happy. That makes me happy. But um, have you heard of any uh, cool little tricks or hacks that any of the companies you've been a part of or you've done them yourself have uh, used in the past as part of that process of identifying in, uh, talent? Because we've heard of a couple of uh, <laughs> of good stories along the way of companies, you know, texting, you know, what, sports questions late at, like at midnight or one in the morning to see yes. what happens, you know? <laughs> will you get back to me? Will it be well thought yeah. out? When yeah. will you respond? Sure, sure. All these little test gimmick things. <laughs> yeah. Have you, have you done any or heard of any good ones? You know, I'm, I'm not as sophisticated as the questions that you see that uh, Google and Amazon and, and Apple, they, they throw these kind of uh, hairball questions at you. I, I will say, though, that uh, there's two things that, that I do or have done. One is I, um, I actually go back and talk to the front desk receptionist and she or he is the first person I get feedback from on a candidate that's come into the building. I want to know everything about them. Uh, did they engage with the receptionist? Did they ask them questions about the company? Did they ask them personal questions, how long they've been there, what they love working? And I don't think it's ever failed when the receptionist uh, has told me that a person was a jerk or ignored them or was uh, conceited or you know above them invariably, uh, if we ended up hiring that person, those real behaviors ended up coming out later and, th and they were termed soon after. I just, you know, a receptionist who's been at a company for 10 or 15 years, they are wired into the culture. And it's amazing how people can put on a, a face, you know, for interviewing. The other thing, uh, if we are feeling particularly sneaky or diabolical, <laughs> Uh, occasionally what we will do is introduce um, stress or conflict into the process. So if a candidate has eight um, and I'm getting a weird vibe, like, you know, they're, they're uh, interviewing for a role that's based on creativity and innovation and, and agile, you know, agile is a big word these days. They're supposed to be real agile in the role, but I'm feeling like they're they're overly structured and they're not very resilient, I may just mess with their schedule and suddenly have somebody not be available to talk to them 
or the person had a conflict or they're going to zoom in with them instead of meeting with them in person, I may screw up their lunch because I really want to see how they adapt and adjust uh, to these changes. And, you know, I think it's those unplanned reactions that tell a lot more versus um, everything they've prepared and and come in and put their best foot forward. Man, I have so many stories that just fit with that. That's so, like, accurate. Everything you just said, I can back up with accurate statement and experience. I had a gal that I really thought was great. Wanted to hire for a marketing coordinator position. Um, She was fresh out of college, but she had uh, gone on and got her MBA. She had some great experience. And so I thought, well, you know, I'm going to have her meet the team. Um, but I, and I would always say, Hey, you know, you guys don't have final say on this, but I want you to meet and just give me your impression. You know, it doesn't mean if you all hate her, um, that I won't hire her or him, whoever it is. Um, but I want you to kind of, I just had a gut that I should do that. So they, they all met with, I parked her down. We had a little cafe actually at the lobby and she had some cookies and coffee. And then the team came down and grabbed her and went up. There's about seven of them. And they met for about 40 minutes and then came back. And every single one of them, I was ready to hire this person, ready to hire them. Um, And every single person came back and said, do not hire her. She is absolutely the worst. Um, And I remember going, saying two things like, well, maybe they don't know. They just don't see it. And I thought, how could I go against 100% of my team? Like, how can I do that? I know I said it. I didn't. But so I was like, eventually I said, hey, it's not... um, I just don't think it's going to work out. I mean, I was I was frustrated because it was back to square one, and I thought we'd have the position filled. And but just at the end of the day, I could not go against every single person on the team, and I respected these people. It wasn't that you know, it was sort of uh, you know just a, a nice gesture to let them speak into it um, and feel a part of it. I, I really respected these people and what they had to say and how they did their job. So it was hurtful to like just cut cut bait, so to speak. The, Very, dif- the difference was you didn't plan it. Like he did. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, true, true, true. Wait, the next day I went down and um, uh, there was a lady that worked there. Her name was Martha and she was one that gave out coffees and cookies and everybody to all the guests that came in. Um, and she said, hey, whatever happened to that girl you interviewed? I said, you know, she didn't work out. She's like, good. When we were down here, I was talking to her and she said she was just hoping to use this as a stepping stone to get to a better company or organization. I mean, it was everything you just said. They know, they know, they see it. Um, I would even do, I I would introduce some of my interviews. I would do stressful situations. Like we were on the road a lot. We worked with a lot of big personalities. And so it could be intense. And so I would try in 30, 40 minutes, try and make that the most, I would interrupt them. I wouldn't let them finish. I would challenge everything they asked me. I remember one guy who ended up hiring. He was great, great. He went back and told one one of his friends, that was the craziest, weirdest interview I've ever been a part of. And um, I was like, yeah, it might have been, but he, he handled everything flawlessly. So he could definitely manage the stress and pressure that comes around this place. So I think the trick, you know, or the challenge, though, is is doing what we just described, but not coming across as the kind of company that you wouldn't want them to go to. So, you know, if, if I went and sat through and, and just felt like everyone was a jerk and nobody was being honest, they didn't follow through on their commitments. Like you said, Kyle, you know, here's what you said you wanted today. And then you just met, you know, I'd be like, do I really want to work here? So how do you balance that that diabolical testing and, and stressful situations with also showing, um, you know, the, the heart and soul of the company and, and what you're truly like? You know, I heard I, this is good advice. 
uh, the actually Rick, the gentleman I was talking about, HR gave me once, and, and I found it to be 100% true. If they're difficult to hire, they're difficult team members. Yeah. If it takes them a while to get back to you, if they don't turn their profiles or stuff in, if it's hard to get them to commit to the interview, if it's, it's everything in the process is felt a little off versus someone very eager that wants to work there, you know, they're, they're, I can come in tomorrow. I can set it up today. I'll have that stuff back to you. Um, they always tend out. They all, it always worked out. If they're difficult to hire, they're difficult to work with. And difficult to fire. <laughs> I, earlier you said, Hey, responsiveness is one of my love languages. I'm like, Kyle, that's why Kyle hates me. He's like, dude, I emailed you 30 seconds ago and you haven't gotten back to me yet. Definitely high on the list for my love language. That's for sure. You know, it's funny because, you know, in the, in the military, especially in, the, in my last position, when you're in charge of, you know, 235 people, when you're, you're, you're the guy and you say jump, it's like, how high? You know, so you so you get uh, you get accustomed to that, and then you transition out of the military, and you're in the real world again, and uh, <laughs> you've been in that world for you know ten, twenty years, like I was, and you kind of okay, okay, back to the planet Earth, you know, yeah, it's, but it's still uh, it's still high on the list for me, not gonna lie. So all right, so so transitioning a little bit, I'd like to transition us a little bit right here and ask you, Mark, is how can an organization go from good HR to great? Why you need all that, I'll tell a funny story that we ha- we did at my old organization. We had a couple of guys um, that were best friends, and he worked over at another place, another company. Um, and he had set up an interview uh, with this person, except he'd hired an actress to come in and play the part of the person being interviewed. <laughs> and so... Um, the, the guys' names were Bill and Jeremy. And so Bill had hired this person. And so Jeremy was doing the interview. And um, this lady comes in and she's quite normal, start, answers the question. And then she gets up and she starts to talk about her golf game. She wants to show Jeremy how, like, to, how to hold the golf club properly and the proper swing. Then she starts to sing her answers. <laughs> Jeremy doesn't know that this is a complete setup. And so everyone is kind of watching him from the office do this interview as this woman gets crazier and crazier and crazier with your behavior during the interview. And by the end of it, Jeremy finally looked, was looking to see, because he was kind of in this class office by himself and he's kind of looking to see if anybody's around and he caught us like all laughing at him. And he looked back at her and she started laughing. But I mean, it was quite hysterical 30 minutes of our lives to watch Jeremy try and keep it together, try and be very professional as this lady just got more zany and and everything she did. Did you you guys hire her to get more zany? Was that the entire purpose? Yeah, we hired her just strictly to annoy Jeremy because it was fun. Hey, Jeremy, we got a great interview for you. You're really going to like this lady. We think she's the one. Oh, that's good. So let let me reframe it a little bit then, Mark. Have you ever been a part of an organization that had not such a great HR and then you were able to kind of help them transition along the way to a better team? And then what did you do to get them to that to that phase? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges in, in this space is, and I apologize up front uh-huh. to any of my, my peers and, and other functions, but some of the functions are about um, technical excellence, right? So when you close the books, it doesn't matter if your head of accounting is particularly service-oriented or nice or a, a great leader. What you care about is that the books are closed accurately and on time and you're, and you're not going to have anything show up in, in an audit or what have you. 
And so I've run into HR teams in the past who, um, who, who try and evaluate themselves based on their competence or their knowledge or, or uh, you know, how, how many tools and great programs they put in, into place. There was one organization that I came into and I was literally hired to sort of take over HR and take it up to the next level. And when I started, there was about uh, a little over 100 people in the team that I was running in HR. And then subsequently over the years, I've taken it down to 80 to 50. And, and uh, then in, in the last time I managed that team, there were 17 folks. And yet, if you ask the organization, if you ask leaders that had been there, you know, where did you get the greatest level of service? Where did you feel like the HR people were really the most helpful and partnered? It was when my team was 17 folks large. And, and I'll give you a couple of examples why. The head of training, when it was a 100-plus HR person team, I asked the head of training, um, I said, tell me what impact you and your team had last year on our primary um, function or business client, like an operations uh, subsidiary. And in this head of training said, we developed, we delivered over 700 um, projects last year across the organization. I said, that's amazing. 700. Can you tell me about a few of them? And, and what was the impact that they had on the business? Well, whenever they called and needed something, we delivered. Whenever they needed coaching to an employee and the manager didn't want to do it, we came in and did it. I said, wow, once again, 700, that's a lot. I said, but help me understand actually what was the impact, not, not all the activity you and your team did, but the impact. If the, if the CEO were to ask me today at lunch, hey, Mark, what did training do for us last year to make us perform as a better company? I don't have an answer to that. Can you help me get there? And, um, you know, to be honest, I, I was nice about it for a while. I pushed and pushed. And then eventually it was clear that this training organization of about 13, 14 folks could not succinctly or in any way explain the impact they had on the business. Oh, wow. And yet they had so many awards. So they literally had folks that were constantly applying for awards of training excellence, going and speaking at conferences, collecting the awards. We had a whole display rack of all these training awards, and yet they couldn't tell us the impact to the business. So uh, I think you can take that same approach with every aspect, you know, or every function within HR. When you want to take an HR organization from good to great, I would not start with asking the HR folks what they're terrific at because they're, they're all going to say they're phenomenal at their specific function or the role they do. Otherwise, they wouldn't still be in the role. Okay, so we got to go back. So then, so then, what what did you end up doing? How did you help that training department? I uh, I try to be patient, uh, but at the end of the day, I eliminated that VP, uh, that director, and the manager under them, and I brought in a new leader to assess the team and see which folks had the right DNA, the right passion, and the right skill set. Um, to deliver what we needed to do. Uh, there was one other step that happened before I let that leader go. Um, I had asked for a, a, a partnership between the training 
sorry, uh, I'd asked for a partnership between the recruiting leader and the training leader. I said, I really want to have an onboarding program. We invest so much in recruiting people to come to our company, and then we just sort of set them free on day one at the whims of whoever, whoever their manager is going to be. And that's not predictable and it's not effective and introduces too much risk. You know, first impressions are critical. So I'd like to have an onboarding program and I'd like recruiting and training to partner and deliver it. And uh, two weeks later, the head of training set up a meeting with me and, and brought their number two, their director and their manager. And the three of them sat down and walked me through their onboarding program. And I said, well, this is a pretty good start. I like a lot of this, but where's recruiting's impact? or, or um, where's recruiting's input into this process? And they said, oh, well, we haven't met with them yet. I said, okay, well, like I said before, I'd really like you guys in recruiting, training and recruiting to partner on building our onboarding program. So when you do that, come back, set up some time and let's look at it. And sure enough, uh, I mean, I can't make this stuff up. Two weeks later, they came back again and they presented their enhanced uh, onboarding program and I didn't even let him get all the way through. I said, wait a minute, there's nobody from recruiting here. Your counterparts aren't here to, you know, to describe this and go through it. And they said, no, um, you know, they just haven't been very responsive and didn't, and didn't come back to us, so we did it. And I thought, you know, this was a fairly simple request. If this is how you guys operate and collaborate together, oh my God, no wonder our clients in the business can't stand it. So ultimately, you know, I had to make significant changes. But I think it's it's those kinds of examples that really tell you where uh, an HR person is coming from. Are they there to serve uh, or are they there to just try and shine. It's good. You know, um, Tony Shea, he wrote the book. He worked at Zappos, started a company Zappos. I remember yeah. he was on a podcast once I was doing, and he said, if you pour into the customers, the customers will pour into, or, or you pour into your team, your team will pour into the customers. And sometimes HR, you know, I think what I hear you say is, hey, if your team is sort of doesn't collaborate well and doesn't work well and gets frustrated with one another, that's typically what your customer is going to see as well. Um, if there's not that con, like it, 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 you can't hide it. It's out there and everybody will see it. And so having great HR will help eliminate that type of stuff. I think you asked an incredible question. You know, that's what you're measuring, but is it making a difference? I remember I read a book by Robert Mueller, the uh, former FBI director, and he would call up different precincts around the nation and say, hey, I noticed that your arrests are up and your quotas are great, um, but big crime still is happening there. What's going on? Are the streets actually safer? And he, these guys just found out if they would just, you know, go into a city and arrest a bunch of people and um, the local police force or whatever, they could hit their numbers and they would look like they're tough on crime, but it really wasn't making any impact whatsoever. Right. And so we would call them and say, it's, it's not really doing anything. I heard somebody once say, hey, to a hammer, everything's a nail. So, they'll, they'll, you know, uh, if you make everything look like a nail, that's what the hammer will go after. Yeah. Um, it comes back, though, what we talked about earlier, you know, culture. If, if culture is the end result of what's accepted, what's allowed, what's ignored, what's swept under the rug, in that particular case, I would, I'm going to guess that if you hit all your numbers, you got better funding. Mm -hmm. And so the motivators there were just drive up arrests so we get our funding as opposed to more, you know, fundamentally, have we had an impact in the foundation of our society or our precinct or our area? Yeah. yeah. 
And so, I mean, you even said it back at the start with that very first story. You said, hey, everybody that's getting a raise is a jerk, but they're hitting their numbers. Well, because that's what leadership measured. Right. You know, people will tend to go to what you measure. So if you want to change an organization, change what you're measuring or how you're, you know, you're defining success. Yeah. But you cannot. It's a podcast, Mark. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I'm struggling because you're, you're absolutely right, and but there's so much more to it. So I feel like, you know, as HR has tried to become more professional, it has said things just like you said, like, um, you know, we need to we need to get better at measuring, and we need to drive leaders and managers to measure more, mm-hmm. and. I'm a I'm a big fan of having data to understand a situation, uh, and and try and find the truth or what's close to it. Not always easy to do with complex human beings, but you know, not swaggy information, but real data that you can use to make an analysis. But there's, you know, beyond measurement, there gets into uh, accountability. There gets into trust. You know, the whole Great Place to Work Institute is based on a trust index, and uh, so measurement's a piece along the journey, but um, it feels like if you stop there, then you're really not going to impact, say, culture per that's, se. That's really, really good. True, true, true. What do the SEALs do? I mean, I mean, they protect it. You know, you guys don't let any, you know, you know just anybody in. No, and you know what's funny is, uh, as Mark was talking about that, I remembered back in 2006 when uh, I was doing the military startup in the, uh, in the teams. And we were grabbing talent from all over the Navy. And a lot of this talent had never been a part of NSW. They'd never been a part of Naval Special Warfare. And so we had to do exactly what you just said. We had to build a, a training program, a pipeline to onboard. And, you know, at, at first it was, you know, me and Rob teaching this. And then we had to take a step back and we said, okay, let's bring in all the other uh, departments and so that they can give their piece. And then, it, and then it grew and grew and grew and became this great, you know, three, four day. It wasn't long. It didn't need to be long. Um, at first it was long. It was like two weeks where we were going through the whole history of Naval Special Warfare. It was way too long. And then eventually we, we slimmed it down to a couple of days where, you know, we brought in each department and then they got to see all the faces from each department and learn, Hey, who to go to when they have problems, you know, all that jazz. So, um, but it was great because then, you know, you, on top of all of that, you gave ownership to the departments. We gave ownership to the departments as well. Like, Hey, no, no, no. Here's your time. Here's your time block. What's all the problems that you're dealing with? Okay. You get them right when they're brand new. It's on you now to make it. And so they owned the curriculum as long as they were within our learning standards, of course, but it was cool. It was great. Um, Wait, wait, I'm going to ask Mark a question here. Go ahead. Um, what are some of the craziest answers and interviews that you've gotten. These are always Wait, fun. What are some of the wildest or craziest answers to questions you've asked in an interview Ooh, that you've that's gotten? Great. I'll throw one off just as an example. I was interviewing a guy once and uh, I said, hey, you look tired. And she said, uh, I am tired. I went and saw uh, the new Harry Potter movie <laughs> last night. I saw the midnight showing and it was three hours. So I didn't get until three or 30 or four. And I remember saying to her, looking at her going, wait, you had an interview for what you just told me would be your dream job um, today. And you were out till three or 4 a.m. in the morning the night before your interview. And now you're tired. And then she started to cry. And I didn't know what to do. And so I was like, oh, man. Next. 
So you hired her. <laughs> she did not make the cut. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think uh, I don't get a lot of crazy answers when I interview folks. Maybe it's because I, I need to talk less and listen more. I always say I like to either be the opening act or the closing act because I love to set the tone for the day, set the stage, talk about the company, the history, how we're evolving, where we're going. And, and you know, by the time a candidate gets gets to me, they've probably been through an awful lot of interviews. And so I want to set them up for success. I'm not weeding out the, the mm-hmm. early folks. Um, but I also like to be the closer because I like to be the one that says, okay, you've had a long day. I know you've talked with X number of people, but I tend to be pretty open kimono. What questions do you have that you just didn't feel like it was okay to ask, you know, throughout the day? And uh, and I like to be very just transparent and honest with them. But I will tell you the one thing that sticks out in my whole 20 plus year in on the HR side of things was I interviewed um, a, a person who was interviewing for a pretty high level um, VP, SVP role in a retailer. And this person had gone into one of our stores, spent a couple of hours, and then brought to the interview basically a binder of uh, everything that he thought was wrong in the store and all the changes and everything that he would correct. And at first, I was really impressed. I'm like, that's, you know, that's an investment, um, that's someone that cares, that's somebody that, you know, is really going to take the initiative. And by the end of his uh, lecture on how oh, we no. as a retailer, you know, we're screwing everything up. I am like, there's no way in the world I would, you know, um, give my thumbs up on, on this candidate. And just like we talked about earlier, I didn't win that one because I was uh, just part of the interview team. And ultimately, the head of merchandising made the decision to bring this person aboard. And then I was the person that exited this this executive about uh, two years later. And all of the um, bravado and I know more than you and I've, you know, you guys are just blessed to have me kind of uh, attitude that he brought and presented is exactly how he operated as a leader, both to his teams, to his partners, executives. And so... um, it, it really, it was a very painful uh, uh, process to go through that. But since we're talking, uh, I'll just tell you a real quick funny story, which is the opposite of that. Um, I interviewed once for Starbucks for a HR job up at headquarters in Seattle. And, and I don't like to, I really don't like to be late. So I booked my flight a day early in case there was weather travel problems. And then there weren't any problems. So I got there a day early and I had a whole day to kill. So I thought, well, I could go see Seattle. It's my first time. Or... I could go gather some data. So I drove around Seattle and I went to six different Starbucks and I sat there from anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes just taking notes and drinking beverages. I was so hyped up at the end of the day for, <laughs> you know, too much coffee. But I sat there and I just observed and I tried to blend in and sometimes I interacted with baristas. Anyway, long story short, that night uh, I went back into the hotel room and I took all of my notes and observations from the six different locations, what time I was there. And I had about seven or eight criteria that I was observing. Um, 
you know, what kinds of customers came into that location? What was the feel or the vibe? How did the baristas interact? Was this a place people came and and hung out and socialized or worked on their computer, or was it more of a grab and go? And I I put the whole thing together on a on a PowerPoint and I rated each store in terms of one to five coffee beans. <laughs> and uh, I showed that the next day in my interviews with Starbucks. And in the back of my mind was this ass from the prior retailer, oh, no. you know. And I'm like, I am not that guy. Um, uh, but what I am is intellectually curious. I want to know what's different about different stores. And, and so, hey, this isn't, you know, any, this isn't comprehensive. It's one guy who likes coffee looking at six stores. But the interviewers absolutely loved it. And it was such a great, you know, fodder for discussion about what people like and the brand and differentiate. Is this how Pete's works? And so anyway, they asked if they could keep it and use it in, in some of their training and so forth. And ultimately, I didn't get the job. They promoted someone from within, uh, which is a good thing, or I'd be up in Seattle right now and and instead of San Diego. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. but, um, you know, there's ways that you can try and analyze and assess and, and inform and add value that come across that that's collaborative. And that's fundamentally what I think... HR needs to be, you know, when you talk about going from good to great, or you can be policy police. We know the rules. We're expert. We have perceived power. And, uh, yeah. Which I have a question here. We didn't get to it. I don't know if we need to, but it was like, hey, um, why does everyone think of HR as the enemy? Um, everyone's probably strong, but many people see HR as the enemy. They don't see it as a collaboration. I mean, I, I view it as this, Mark. Like, I think it's because of just corporate America, you know, over decades has kind of framed it that way inappropriately. And so that's translated from the the baby boomer generation uh, down to, you know, the millennial generation. But but what do you think? You know? Yeah. uh, um, Again, because I didn't go straight out of school and into HR and I, I wasn't mentored by the the file Nazis and the personnel policy police. Um, You've done all right, just to, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, you know, it, it reminds me, when I started at United Healthcare up in um, Minneapolis, I drove from Twin Cities up to Duluth in the middle of winter. So it was like minus oh. temperatures, right? Minus, minus teens. And I, I drove up there because I wanted to learn how my client operated. And when I got there, you know what the first thing they said to me was? No one from HR has ever come up and visited us. And I just shook my head. And I heard the same thing when I was at Honeywell. And I had gone down to the production line um, to see how they made ring laser gyros and what was special about our gyros versus the competition. And what was the hardest thing about making them, you know, in, in production? And then fast forward to when I started at Petco, my first day on the job, I didn't even go into headquarters. Instead, I flew to Chicago to work in a store. And in particular, I wanted to work a truck unload at two in the morning. And the value of that is indescribable. I learned that when you're unloading, you know, pallets of 50 pound bags of dog food and you bring those pallets, you know, from a from a truck through the loading dock into the store and you're weaving through all the merchandise, you then have to move all the dog food that's sitting on the floor to put the freshest new stuff on the bottom 
and put the oldest stuff on top. So it's always first in, first out. But this is all manual. You're schlepping 50-pound bags. And I learned that these are the kinds of things where employees can cut corners. And if they're going to cut corners on, you know, the freshness of the dog food, are they going to cut corners on caring for the animals or the fish or, you know, the, the accounting of the money and whether they lock it up or take it to the bank, all those things. But you don't learn that in corporate, right? Yeah, I learned it by going and do that, that, uh, that unload and what those temptations are. And so um, I could give you example after example of working in distribution centers at Pro Flowers or visiting pipeline terminals in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, you know, or in my current company, I think I was the first executive that came on board and actually took one of our online classes from start to finish, walked in the shoes of what our students are. And even though all of those companies are completely unrelated, there's one theme there, which is, you know, I'm HR has to be curious. We have to understand how the company works or how the department works, not just how we make money, but literally how things are done internally uh, before it gets out to the customer. Uh, There's a great author I like, Mark Efron, and he calls this being a business junkie. And I finally had a description for how I operate because you know, the things we talked about earlier, when, when someone says you're not like other HR folks I've met, you understand our business, it's not because someone told me to. It's because the only way I think I can serve you is if I understand what you do and the problems and challenges your people have. And I have to come with credibility. And I don't have that credibility day one or week one. I have that credibility from learning and walking the line and, and not just asking questions, but usually doing the work. Now, I didn't build any ringlays or gyros or our planes wouldn't stay in the air. But, you know, I spent time on the line asking, what's the thing that frustrates you the most? What's the scariest? What's the biggest risk? So um, I think that that is why HR is literally viewed as the enemy, because HR doesn't take the time to, to look, listen, and learn. How do we run our department, our function, our business? They can't explain the competition. They can't explain what makes us unique or different. And at the end of the day, um, I just love being a business junkie. So I'll, I'll have a follow-up for that one. It'll be pretty quick, but... So then how, how, would, how would I encourage a leader to ensure that their mark is doing just that? What's a great way that, uh, or advice you could give leaders to, to say, hey guys, here's how you would encourage someone in my position, you right? Yeah, great question. I, I, you know, I'm lucky that I'm, it's probably from my old IT days, I'm curious. I was that kid that took things apart just to see how they run, I usually couldn't get them back together again. You had to buy a new lawnmower after I took it apart. But that curiosity, um, not everyone's as, as you know warped as I am. So I think if a leader wants to really help an HR, you know, let's say a CEO hires a new head of HR, the best thing they can do is put them into some sort of um, introduction slash rotation where they have to go spend, you know, X number of days on the front end of the value cycle. Maybe it's marketing or acquisition or, uh, you know, if it's a manufacturing plant, where do we get our raw materials and so forth? But you have to understand the entire life cycle. 
And that person should spend time actually with the people doing the job from the front line up. I learned how gasoline is moved across the country in pipelines and how you divert the gas that's uh, super expensive, the premium unleaded from the regular, and people have to do that manually and divert it into tanks. But I didn't get it sitting in corporate. I went out and worked in the terminals. And so I think um, a CEO should not just encourage, but should literally require HR to have to to learn the business. It's the biggest, um, folks have asked me in my career, you know, what's your biggest regret? My Regret, honestly, is that I've never worked in operations. So I've never had P&L responsibility. I can describe, as you've heard, 10 or 11 different companies because I've done little bits and pieces, but I have not spent 40 hours or 80 hours or 2,080 hours a whole year doing work on the line. And I think great HR folks will have spent some amount of time in ops doing the business. and for me, the closest I could get to was being a business partner who usually had permission to go poke around and ask and do and visit. I felt trust. You know, it's interesting. You had such a successful career and, and the people I know that I really respect in HR um, who have had successful careers have done just what you've said. They've gotten, they've asked me, what do you need? They ask lots of questions. They seem to genuinely care about me and what my needs are, the company or the department. Um, and the people that just kind of frustrate me you know, the ones that want to friend me on Facebook um, and they don't want to be friends on Facebook. I, I'm pretty sure the the motive is they went to a conference and someone said, hey, you should friend everybody in the company on Facebook to make sure you got an eye on them. And it just, you know, there's always this um, big brothers watching mentality that I think HR doesn't do itself any favors because they haven't. And I would have happily been friends with you or a, you know, a variety of HR people who had invested in me. But when they just show up, and my feed, it just feels like just another level, a wall, another wall goes up. And I think that impacts the company because then you start to go, hey, these guys, don't don't stay too much around them. Don't talk too much around them. Um, they're, they're always looking for a way to fire you is the mentality that seems to come out as a result of that kind of action. Yeah. So so for all of our listeners, don't friend request Chris. Just no. friend request me. Just friend request Kyle. Actually, <laughs> follow us on LinkedIn, cultureforce. Um, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna see my kids and our vacations, and it's a pretty. It won't change your life, I promise. <laughs> All right, Mark. Lightning round. Currently reading any books? I am. I commute to uh, Phoenix every single week, so I chew through a lot of stories on Audible, making that five hour drive each way. Love um, and I've been doing it for, you know, since it was on tapes and then CDs and now it's online. So kind of dating myself. But uh, my current book is actually called Level 5. It's about nanotechnology and AI. And what I love about these uh, technical thrillers is that there's always some grains of truth. There's some foreshadowing of what's going to happen. So seven, ten years ago, I read a book. I don't remember the name. And it had swarms of little tiny drones. And just this past week, I was reading about how the military and DARPA are developing swarms of little tiny drones. Um, so I don't take it all as fact because it's fiction. But there's there's they usually do their homework and research. So um, level five, I'm enjoying that. And then I, I have to say, just to be honest, I just ordered a book called um, How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. And that book I got on my Kindle app because I need to read that one and think about it and write notes and and reflect. It, it's not just a, a brainless driving book. Um, but there's a lot of work that 
all or many of us need to do, especially white men. And so I'm really interested to, to dive I'm glad you that. said that. You know, I've had a lot of conversations with my kids uh, this week on all this stuff and uh, that's happening out there. And, uh, you know, I, I was a history major in undergrad. And um, I used to think, oh, this is just revisionist history. We're going to pull down these statues. And, you know, I'm not proud of the history, but, you know, I don't know the revisionist history. And I want everyone to know I'm 100% for pulling down every statue, every flag, if that's what it takes. You know, I uh, watched John Oliver a couple of weeks ago, or, and, you know, he was saying that, you know, these are the same problems that we had in the 1920s, that we had in the 1880s, and here we are in 2020. And I, enough, enough. If it takes a complete eradication um, of all of the statues and all the flags and, and a rewriting of everything to get us past this, I'm all for it. Let's do it. I mean, the idea that the color of someone's skin should be held against them in any way um, in 2020 in the 21st century, it just blows my mind. And if I've contributed to it, I'm ready to move past it. What do I have to do um, to stop? And if it's to comment on friends' Facebook posts that seem stupid, I'm happy to do that. You know, I don't know what it is. If it's conversation, if it's reading a book, um, you know, I've read the book, The Third Option. Um, I'm partial to it. Um, I helped launch the book as part of my uh, deal when I was out here in, in California with Miles McPherson, a former NFL player and pastor of a, a massive church out here. It's a fantastic book. And he talks about, he kind of breaks it down um, and he calls it right, think of it like right privilege. The world is built for right-handed people. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, the, the desks in schools, scissors, everything, that's what white privilege is tends to be like if you don't completely understand it or if you never had the opposite of it. And so if you're a right-handed person, you kind of get it, what it's like. And so it just kind of opened my eyes in, in another way. So it's just another good book. Yeah. You know what hit me? Um, I, I've been fortunate, I guess, being in HR, I do have some ability to impact, at least within organizations, whether it's employee resource groups or diversity and inclusion or, you know, whether we're going to change our logo to an LGBTQ, uh, you know, rainbow color. And so I felt at least uh, somewhat informed as an HR person. But my my daughter's visiting a 21-year-old this, this week from school. Um, up in, in Washington State, and she's been engaging me on really, really tough conversations because she's graduating, uh, studying in sociology, and she's taking classes on global racism and, and things. And so she's challenging me with these really hard questions, and I'm, I'm being, you know, open and vulnerable and telling her, look, I don't have all the answers. But as she and I have been talking, I'm like, wow, if it's this hard to have the conversation with your child, mm -hmm. how hard is it to have with that, you know, person of color in the office who you've just assumed because it's everything's designed for right-handed people? You know, I must have been doing things right all along. And so she opened my mind up to, I don't have a clue of what I should and could be doing, but I know that doing nothing is going to perpetuate the problem. And as you said, we'll be in 2120 and still dealing with this. So my starting point is to get informed and to, and to read. And I'm listening to a lot of webcasts. Uh, and she has sent me plenty to listen to, to educate myself. So anyway. We got off topic there, but I, yeah, think, I think it was worthwhile. Definitely worthwhile. Sorry. It's all good. Uh, favorite book? 
Yeah, I, I couldn't come up with a favorite. I'm a big fan of the Lee Child series, Ever Ever uh, uh, Reacher, um, since they first came out, as well as Brad Thor and, and Scott oh, Harvath. Yeah. yeah, so I never had the chance to serve, but um, I absolutely love these unique individuals that, that just put it all out there. Mm, awesome. Personal daily rituals? Uh, you know, I used to... Um, I used to enjoy my hour in the morning at the gym and I would either swim or bike or, or do weights and stretching uh, simply because I wanted to be in good enough shape to enjoy mountain biking. That's my passion. And, and so that hour um, just really started my day. And I have to admit that when COVID hit and the gyms closed uh, and I started you know, driving instead of flying to Phoenix every week, um, I, I have not replaced that hour with I could, you know, I could find ways to do that at home, but I haven't. And so uh, my personal goal right now for this uh, remainder of this year is to lose my COVID-20 uh, th- that I have put on from from not doing my ritual in the morning. I really miss it. Well played. And God bless the you. COVID-20. That, that's, yes, we all have got that. I think I saw somebody the other day that said, no wonder all the Renaissance paintings were of, of, of heavier fat naked women eating because it was during the plague. And they all just kind of rolled in, and for what it's for, I I I had um, applaud you. That drive from San Diego to Phoenix is the most desolate, lonely drive. There's what what is right in the middle there. Um, Bend. Bend, yes. Yeah. If I had a Tesla, that's where I would charge. And I can tell you every fast food uh, yep. <laughs> place here. Yeah. No doubt about it. Well, Mark, thanks again so much for joining us. Oh, oh, we for, almost forgot. Is there anything that we haven't asked you today that you think would be valuable to our listener? Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, the one thing that that I keep coming back to is uh, we've talked a lot about HR and how to make it better, what it should be. And if, if you think about that demographic of A to B round, small companies, San Diego, we're full of biotechs. You know, usually it's 30 some odd people get hired before they realize they need somebody in HR just to keep them out of trouble. Um, but I always, you know, again, I, I've spent a lot of time mentoring the next generation of HR leaders here in town and, and trying to help them grow. And they, they ask about what makes good HR. And, and I think that what I've learned is CEOs should, um, should count on HR to always have and maintain an accurate view of the workforce. Again, I'll use the example with my my uh, brothers and sisters in accounting and finance. A CEO can go to finance any day and say, where are we financially? What's the health of the business from a numbers, from an EBITDA, from a, a growth and a cash flow? But very rarely can a CEO go to the head of HR and say, what's the health of our employees? You know, they can say, hey, show me the last engagement survey scores, which is just data, um, but they they should be able to go to HR and do the same, ask the same question about the workforce: what's working well, what's getting in the way, um, you know, what are, how are people feeling and doing? What, what's the quality? Um, and then I like you know they should set really rigorous expectations around HR's contribution. HR, yeah, they've got to do the basics, the filing, the compliance, and the hiring and, and pay. But why don't we hold HR accountable for looking 12 months down the road? What's going to happen in our business, right, that could affect our employees? What's happening with our competitors? What would cause our folks to leave in the next 6, 12, 18 months? They usually don't set those kind of expectations of HR. 
And so, you know, at the end of the day, I hope um, I hope the legacy that I've left is is developing HR folks that want to improve the employee experience um, because the better the employee experience, uh, the more they're going to contribute to the success, you know, of their own business. Um, Sears talked about it in, in the 80s with the employee customer profit chain. And I fully believe that. And so if HR focuses on creating the best experience, then the employees will deliver uh, on the goals of the business. All right. So as we close up, we always give our guests the opportunity to give a shout out to any organization that they might want to. Uh, We do like a free commercial. So um, if there is any organization or program or event or anything that you might want us to uh, give a shout out to, we're more than happy to. Yeah, uh, you know, we've been talking about culture the whole time and, and talking about HR, what makes good HR, great HR, and those sorts of things. I've been super fortunate the last four years to get involved with an organization called the Honor Foundation, and it helps um, American Special Operations Forces military vets who are transitioning uh, from the soft world into whether it's business or nonprofits or doing an entrepreneurial gig, starting their own company, whatever. But I, I spend a lot of time with guys trying to figure out how do they take all these life lessons and leadership lessons and things that they've done and the thousands of people they've impacted, the the. Uh, the programs and campaigns they've had to plan and design. And how do you take all that and bring it to our business world? Because, you know, just like the comment you made about the the fat ladies during the Renaissance, like, I think American business is, is fat, you know? Mm-hmm. It's why we can't produce steel or computers cheaply here in the U.S. and, and quality. We, we outsource things. And so my passion is bringing these amazing leaders and experienced operators into the business world one at a time and inserting them. And that's what the Honor Foundation does is it helps these people figure out what they want to do and and how they can serve in the next chapter of their life. And so just a a big call out to, you know, I've personally hired uh, several SEALs and Honor Foundation graduates, and I've put them right into HR. And, uh, you know, the, the results have been fantastic. We might have to uh, we might have to change it to the Honor Foundation podcast. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, hey, thanks for coming today, Mark. You listened to Mark Brown uh, and all his insight and wisdom. Um, this was uh, I thought this would be a boring HR seminar, and uh, actually, there's been a ton of fantastic stuff. It's clear why you're one of the the tops in the business. We appreciate you coming on. Uh, We'd love you to check out cultureforce.team, cultureforce.team. And if you need help or guidance on your culture, Kyle and I are here to help. Um, We want to thank San Diego Christian College for letting us uh, host our podcast out of here today. Uh, One More Wave, uh, check them out. Kyle's nonprofit that he runs, they do fantastic work. And uh, check out the content agency, Q-O-N-T-E-N-T agency, if you need any marketing guidance or wisdom. Uh, Thank you to all of those people. Thank you to Kyle, who's managing the production of this podcast and um, everything in between. Thanks again, Mark. And uh, we hope you enjoy this. We've got some other great podcasts coming up. If you haven't heard them from Deanne Turner uh, from Chick-fil-A, we've had Rob Newsom from the Philadelphia 76ers and also uh, White House Security. And we've got Larry McIntosh coming up, who is the former brand director for Pepsi. So 
Anything I missed, Kyle? Nope. Again, big shout out to Mark Brown. Thank you, Mark, for joining us. It was such a pleasure to have you here today. Everybody have a great week. Trying to, trying to, trying to find my way home